Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm Tim Thurston, one of the hosts of the channel, and today I'm joined by Chris Peacock, who is the translator of a recent volume called The Handsome Monk and Other Stories, a series of short stories and novellas by the Tibetan author Tsering Thundrup. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Hello. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I am a a PhD candidate in Chinese literature at Columbia University. Um, My background is primarily or initially in Chinese language and literature. And at uh, some point many years ago, I became interested in the subject of Tibetan literature, Tibetan writing in contemporary China. I started out researching Chinese language, uh, Tibetan literature. And after I gradually learned the Tibetan language, I became much more interested in that side of things, in what Tibetans uh, were doing writing in Tibetan in modern China. And that's, uh, in, a, in a nutshell, where this, this collection came from. Uh, great. And can you tell us a little bit about Tseren Dundrup? Uh, who is he and what drew you to his literature in particular? Tseren Dundrup is... He's, I would say, one of the most prominent authors writing in Tibetan at the moment. Uh, he's very, very well liked. He's very popular. But he's also very, very critically respected. There's a lot of critical writing about his work uh, in Tibetan. He began uh, in the in the early 1980s, around the time that what we think of now as modern Tibetan literature itself actually began. And he's, he's rare and interesting for a number of reasons, one of which is that he f- is still going strong now, from then to now. He's been writing nonstop. He only writes fiction. He doesn't write poetry, unlike a lot of uh, Tibetan authors. And what uh, first drew me to his work was that I'm now researching, I'm, I'm interested in the ways in which Tibetan language literature does and does not fit into contemporary China, the context of contemporary Chinese literature, whether it relates to the frameworks of how we talk about Chinese literature as a whole, uh, or is it something just completely, completely distinct? And Tsering Dundrup wrote a, a short story called uh, Jalo, which is one of the stories I translated for this collection. And it's been interpreted by, I would say most Tibetan critics actually, as a story about Tibetan national character, the problems of Tibetan national character. And it's been interpreted as an equivalent, a Tibetan version, if you like, of uh, Lu Xun's The True Story of Acute, of course, one of the most uh, famous works of modern Chinese literature. So I, I was vaguely aware of these comparisons. Um, and that's what first drew me to his work to look at, at this problem to see if it was something that I wanted to investigate further. And I did. Um, I went to interview the author, 
to get his opinions on the subject, see how he felt about it. And as I was as writing this up, as I was writing about the subject uh, for my own research, I translated uh, Rallo, the short story, just for my own use so I could quote it. But I kept on, kept on reading his work, and I'm a huge fan of it, first of all. I, I think it's really great. I think it's really important. He's, he's very insightful. He's very witty. He's funny. His stories are very tragic. And he has a lot to say about what's going on in modern Tibet. And so after translating Rala, this first story, I, I just started doing more. Uh, some of them were ones that I had read that I personally liked. Uh, some were stories that he recommended. So he has you know, favorites am in, among his own work, of course. And he said, you know, this, I consider this one to be very important. I consider this one to be very important. And so the two of us you know, communicated a lot and we ended up putting together uh, a list or sort of collection. And there's a very similar collection that's been published in, in Japanese um, of his short stories. So my translation, to some extent, reflects the, the same stories that he chose in collaboration with a Japanese translator with a, a few differences here and there. Uh, and after some time had passed, yeah, I, I translated enough stories for a whole collection. Well, that's brilliant. Um... Are you at liberty to tell us which ones he felt were most um, were most sort of important or reflective of what he wanted to say? Yeah, I think often it's uh, the longer ones, and, and I've, I've received sort of different feedback from this because a lot of the stories in the collection, the lengths really vary. So some of them, uh, like Rallo, Rallo is essentially a novella now. It's actually quite a long story. He wrote a sequel to it, uh, so it's actually quite lengthy now, but a lot of the stories are just a couple of pages long. They're almost just sketches. And I've had some people tell me that they prefer the short ones. They prefer the, these sort of tiny little vignette sketch stories. And some people prefer the, uh, the more fleshed out, lengthier stories. Uh, I, I personally like both of them, but I think he, the ones that he finds to be more important are, tend to be the ones that, uh, that have a bit more length to them. So Rallo for his not just by him, but is considered by Tibetan critics to be one of the most important works of literature, pieces of fiction in modern Tibetan. Um, a Show to Delight the Masses, which was actually translated by uh, my colleague Lauren Hartley at Columbia many years ago. Um, she had published this translation in a magazine, and it, it's such a great story. It, it's, it's, and so well translated. I knew I definitely wanted to include that one, and he did too. Uh, Black Fox Valley, The Handsome Monk, the, the longer pieces, I think, are the ones that he was very insistent should be included. And I 100% agreed because they tend to be in some of my favorite pieces as well. Interesting. Um, so these stories, short and long, seem to all be sort of set in the same sort of fictional community. Um, can you sketch out some of the community's main figures who weave in and out of these different uh, narratives? Uh, and, you know, maybe what, tell us a little bit about what these characters sort of reveal about Tsering uh, Dundrup and his literature? Absolutely. Tsering um, Dundrup is, is from a place called um, Maho, um, which is in Qinghai province. And he's, he's ethnically Mongolian. This is a county that is historically ethnically Mongolian, but now linguistically, culturally Tibetan. So he, he considers himself to be 
be both. And the stories are set in a place called uh, Zeshan County, which is a fictionalized version of his own county. And all of the stories take place there. So anyone who has read um, Moyen, for example, will be familiar with this, this sort of idea. And it, it's similar in that there's this, this rural world where all of the stories take place. But it's a very, very different kind of world because we're talking about a nomadic community. Tsung Donup is from a, a nomadic background. And almost all of his stories are in this nomadic setting. Very rarely do we find uh, the city or even really big towns of any size. It's mostly about nomadic life with these occasional uh, sort of interjections from, from more urban places. Um, and in terms of the, the kinds of people we meet there, there's all of his stories are, are quite, quite dark in a way, but also very satirical, very funny. Um, he has a very bleak sense of humor sometimes. And so almost all of our characters are corrupt in some way or flawed in some way. And this could be government officials, for example. Uh, government officials constantly come up in his stories and always are looking to get ahead in the world, uh, both in terms of their position, in terms of their financial status. But also, as this is Tibet, we find monks, we find lamas in all of his stories. And they end up doing much the same thing as the officials. They're trying to find ways to get ahead in life. And somewhere in there, we always have just ordinary nomad characters who might be struggling with these different issues in one way or another. But I think that all of his characters are very, are very human, very empathetic, uh, at the same time as, as they are quite corrupt and despicable. Right. Um... Yeah, it seemed like so. So it's but it's primarily a nomadic area. So you have sort of you have the um, you have the officials, you have the monks, and but but the remaining people tend to be nomads. Yes. Yes. Um, no farmers to speak of, as I recall. Is that right? No, none that I can recall uh, in any of his stories. No, all nomads. Okay. Um. And and you mentioned that Sanandundra is a satir is sort of very satirical, satirical, and I'm just wondering if you could say for a second um, how uh, what what makes you read it in that fashion, or or what what sort of in what ways is it satirical, or how is the satire done? Mm. I would say he has quite a a coarse sense of humor. Uh, <laughs> he um, talks a lot about bodily fluids. That's what um, one person pointed out to me. I think is, is the nice, the polite way of putting that. Um, but I think what is actually interesting is that I, I've had conversations with him about his own work and about the work of other people that he admires and that he draws from, where I have uh, have, have seen tragedy. Uh, I remember reading Black Fox Valley, which is one of my favorite stories of his. And I got to the ending and I was texting with him and I, I said, I just finished reading this story. It's 
I, you know, so sad. I was, I was tearing up at the end. And, and he said, yeah, it's, but it's funny, right? And I said, well, I suppose it's funny, but it, more than anything, it, it's tragic. And, and he said, well, you have to find comedy in the tragedy. He once, he once told me that uh, he thought that the ending of 1984 was, was satirical. It was funny, which uh, if, if you've read 1984 and you're familiar with the ending, I think is, is a quite unusual take on how that novel finishes. Uh, but he'll often set up these situations that are, are quite unfortunate, quite violent, quite tragic in one way or another. But he'll, he'll put a spin on it through what happens um, in the plot that he then feels is, is injecting a sense of humor into it. And of course, his characters, their, their dialogue, it's this very earthy, witty, banterous back and forth dialogue with sometimes kind of coarse jokes. It's really trying to reflect the, the language, the feeling of the way people in this everyday world communicate. Right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Um, except perhaps the 1984 part. Um, <laughs> so uh, um, I guess, I guess maybe we can get straight into the stories themselves. Um, the first story in, in the piece or, or in the collection is called the disturbance in camp D. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's really, for me, it was really fascinating about this uh, camp leader named uncle Zopa who loses his camp. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a wonderful beginning of the book from my perspective, because it really discusses nomad life in Tibet. Um, not positively, not negatively. It just sort of, it's this wonderful, just very descriptive, but also very evocative um, sort of description of nomad life and how important it is to have a community mm. and, and what happens to Uncle Zoba when he loses his community. Um, can you talk a little bit about the story and maybe how, from your perspective, it sheds light on Tibetan life in contemporary China? Absolutely. Um, this was actually the very first story of his that I ever read. Uh, I read it for um, a Tibetan language class, actually, uh, with um, a teacher of mine at Columbia who knew I was interested in, in modern literature. And so he, he picked some, some of his favorite stories to read for us to read together and uh, this this was the first thing i ever read by him and the way that the book is organized actually is, is chronologically so the the last story is actually very recent it was only written a years ago this story was one of his one of his earlier pieces it was actually originally written in chinese and he later wrote a tibetan version on it so he turned under has also written some things in Chinese, not very much. I think this in this collection, this is the only one that he originally wrote in Chinese. But he asked me to translate the Tibetan version anyway because he, it's not something he really does anymore. He now considers the Tibetan to be definitive. Um, and I just think this story has a really good pace, a really good sense of humor. And in terms of you were asking before about satire, this is really the perfect example and the perfect way to open the book, I think, the perfect introduction to his world. And it involves, 
primarily those those two things I was talking about before that constantly come up in this fiction. You've got the corruption of officialdom and the corruption of religion, and in this story, they're happening hand in hand. So uh, the the head of this village, who is you know, a very old camp nomad camp, um, I suppose in a, in a I, I looked at the the original Chinese of this, and it was a a sun a, as you village you would say, but He's actually talking about a, a nomadic camp that moves from place to place. So village just was not, not the right word in English. It implies something more settled. And this uh, Sogyap is the head of this camp, this community, if you like. So it's a very minor official position. And the local monastery is, is being rebuilt. This is taking place likely in... in sometime in, in the 80s after the Cultural Revolution when religion is being allowed to again start to, to flourish in Tibet. And so they're rebuilding the local monastery and the Lama is soliciting donations. And so Sogyap wants to, he wants to get as, as much credit as possible from this Lama. And so he does that by giving him as much money as possible which means that he keeps putting more and more and more demands on the people of his community to the point that it, it gets absolutely impossible and unbearable for them. And when they can no longer give them many money, he one by one kicks all of the families out of the camp until he's the only one left. And he essentially goes insane from, from being kicked out of his own community but it all happens in this this farcical comical way the the excesses of, of corruption and the way in which officials and major religious figures are exploiting the people becomes the source of comedy and one other thing that i should mention um, is that this is also the first time in the collection that we see uh, electron who is the recurring, a recurring character in Serendipity's world. He comes up again and again in his fiction. So Alakdrong is the lama who runs uh, the local monastery in, in this fictional county, and he is just the most vile, debased, shameless, corrupt figure you could imagine. And he is the one insisting on that Sogyap helps him go back to his camp and take more and more and more money from the people to rebuild the monastery. This is his uh, first appearance here, too. Uh, excellent. Um, the next piece is called Piss and Pride, and it's an extremely short piece about a nomad man visiting his son at university and, and trying to find a place to take a leak in the city. Um, can you just sort of talk briefly about this story and maybe what it what it might mean or how, what it might help us um, understand about uh, sort of sort of Tsenendondrup and the sort of the contemporary Tibetan intellectual world? So this piece, uh, this is one of the ones that I included, that I wanted to include um, for reasons that I'll, I'll explain in a minute. But I, I also thought well, another thing that I thought was quite interesting about it was that it does touch on this theme that we see a lot in, in writing throughout uh, Tibetan literature, Chinese literature, this divide 
between the, the city and the country. And this increasing move towards uh, almost a sense of, of class differentiation between those who live in the city, those who live in the country. So this old man, his son has gone off to university in the city, and he's taken on city manners. And his other university friends have city manners. And now their parents from the countryside, who are these, these bumpkins, essentially, become a source of, of shame to them. They're, they're embarrassed of their parents anytime they visit the city. So once again, he's taking, turned under, is taking this, this fairly serious social situation. And, and this is a, probably the most extreme example of it, making it into a, a farce, making it into something ridiculous in order to, to get at, to poke at and critique this social situation that has now come up into bed. And so the old man goes to the city to visit his son uh, at college, but he doesn't want to embarrass his son by taking a leak just anywhere. He's supposed to go and use the public bathroom, but he cannot find this place. And eventually he ends up passing out because he's been holding it in too long. And the, the reason actually that I thought this story was just worth including was it, this is a, probably very obscure and of interest to very few people, uh, but anyone who knows anything about Tibetan literature will be very familiar with uh, a writer called Dundrup Gale, who is this father figure of, of modern Tibetan literature. And one of Dundrup Gale's most, uh, most cherished ideas was this idea of, of national pride or ethnic pride, that pride in your, your Tibetan-ness. And I read this story as, as actually being Tsering Dundrup's fairly light-hearted, wry critique, uh, if you like. If, critique is probably a bit of a strong word <laughs> for this story because it's extremely short and quite silly. But I think it was, uh, in some ways, a, a way of just poking fun at or slightly undermining this, this discourse, this narrative of national pride, because Dundrup Gale was a, a very, very sort of serious writer who discussed you know, big questions and big issues. And I think this is interesting to me because we're seeing this, this dialogue, this conversation between two major Tibetan writers occurring here in that Turing Dundrup is, is offering his own, uh, his own voice to this debate where he's taking on uh, a fairly serious issue, but in his own style, which is in a very lighthearted, satirical style. And I think at the same time, perhaps slightly uh, maybe taking Dodrup Gill down a peg or slightly poking fun at him for the, the excessive seriousness of this idea of national pride. That's really fascinating, <clears throat> not least because it also reminds me of some comedies, some Tibetan comedies where going through a similar thing, sort of using the bathroom, the, the, the question of public toilets and um, to, to discuss sort of changes in sort of urban rural lifestyles. Um, and, and then bringing in the point of pride is a really interesting sort of um, way of linking it to these other questions. Very fascinating. Um, the next uh, offering in the, in the, no, in the collection is, one that you've already sort of mentioned briefly is Ralo, this novella-length story that is 
um, the main focus of your research. And I expect I expect we're going to take some time to talk about this, but let's just start with Raulo. What's this? What's the story about, and why is it important? The story of, of Rallo, it's has been you could generally describe it as a as a kind of a picaresque story. So the adventures or the different episodes in the life of, of this uh, not quite anti-hero, um, but this this kind of roguish figure. So the story begins with his birth uh, and goes all the way through to his death. And along the way, it's just following Rallo. That's, that's all that happens, is that we stick with this one character, we see what happens in his life. And in many ways, it, it's this panorama of, of Tibetan society. He does all the sorts of different things that the average Tibetan man might do. Uh, so he joins a monastery, he a herder, he does petty laboring, and for the majority of the second part of the story, he's in prison. So I should say that uh, this it's a funny it's a funny how it became a novella because it was initially a short story, uh, the fairly reasonable length, and then it was so popular and it was so widely read that actually the editors of um, this magazine called Light Rain, which is one of the most important Tibetan literary magazines, actually pushed Tsering Dondrup to, to write more. But the story ends in a very, the first part, the original short story, ends in a very funny place. And so they asked him to keep going, to write the rest of the story, to, to finish telling us about Rallo's life. So he wrote a much longer second part, a sequel, if you like, and then he stuck the two together, and made it into a novella. Okay. Um, and, and you had already sort of suggested that it's sort of this AQ, this Tibetan AQ almost. Um, how, how does that work? Um, sort of now that you've given us this sort of this brief introduction, how, how, does the, how do you see that working? Um, and, and how did... Um, how does he? How does Rallo serve as this sort of AQ figure in the story? Right. Yeah. So from the very beginning of the story, within the first page, we already get the impression that that Rallo is this this very pathetic character. He's born um, not an orphan. He has a. He's his mother. That's how the story starts. He's the only family he'd ever known since he came into the world was his mother. He doesn't know who his father is. And so he asks his mother and she goes and finds this, this, this figure who ends up becoming his, his stepfather. And she says, this is your father. And this man tries to train Rallo to load a yak, uh, but you know, to hold onto a yak while he's loading it. And he can't even do this, the most easy of tasks and, Yak runs off and ruins all their family possessions, and the stepfather slaps him in the face and calls him useless. Uh, and also, of course, Rao's appearance, which is something that happens straight away, or something we are given straight away. He has this this long braid, which immediately, of course, calls to mind RQ, but it's a sort of Tibetan nomadic 
braid of a, a braid that a, a Tibetan nomad man might wear. Uh, and throughout the entire story, even after he grows up, he's always got a runny nose. And again, this is the, the polite society way of describing this. Turing Dundrup's descriptions of, uh, of his runny nose are much more uh, graphic, <laughs> let's say. But Rallo's life uh, from childhood to adulthood, everything, uh, everything he does seems to go wrong in one way or another. So his, his mother dies, uh, his stepfather leaves, and this is all the first few pages. And he gets sent off to boarding school. And at boarding school, he, he at first seems to be very diligent, first seems to be very smart. He learns all of the, the letters of the alphabet before other students. But then a few days later, the teacher says, write, write the first letter of the Tibetan alphabet on the board. He can't do it. So the teacher comes out with this, this phrase. He says, no one, no one should learn from Rallo. And this is his phrase that gets repeated throughout his life over and over and over again. No one should learn from Rallo. And eventually, he fails at school. Uh, he can't keep up with his classmates. He's expelled. And we have this series of marriages. A lot of the, the first part of the story involves his various failures in marriage. He keeps uh, getting together with these women and then becoming, like, like he did at school, he seems to be a good person at first, and then he becomes lazy and indifferent and useless, and they end up leaving him. At one point, he goes to a monastery. The same thing happens again. He starts he's studying the sutras, studying the texts very diligently. And then he gets bored and he sneaks off from the monastery to go drinking um, and to go to the, the video store. And so everything he does in life is just one after another, uh, a sense of failure. And this is just describing the plot, but the, the Tibetan critics who, who have looked at this and seen, uh, seen national character in it, I mean, at that point it becomes a much more a theoretical argument that in many ways is often not actually related to the story. So there's one article in particular that's, uh, that was very influential by this uh, major professor uh, who's at the Northwest University of Nationalities in Joe. He wrote an article about this story that, that really sort of created this reading of it as being about national character, as being a, a similar story to RQ. And there have been many more articles since, but his most of his article, and in fact, I would say, doesn't really deal with the story itself, doesn't really deal with the text that directly. It uses the text more as a, a springboard to start talking about ideas of Tibetan religion and uh, ideas about Tibetan folk society that this particular scholar sees as, as being backwards, socially backward, or being responsible for Tibetans' backwardsness and relatively low status in the world. And he sees all of these ideas embodied in the figure of Rallo. And th there's, a, there's a big, long argument that I, I won't get into, but um, I mean, for example, just to give you one example as a sense of the kind of argument, uh, he argues that, that to Rallo, everything is karma. Everything that happens in life is karma. And there are a couple of moments in, in the text uh, where Rallo says, well, this, you know, this is my karma. 
whatever's whatever's happening to me is my karma. And so he, this professor argues that this is a that this particularly Tibetan worldview created by uh, Buddhist faith or Buddhist ideology that then means that you can't apply yourself to progress in the real world. Tibetans become like, rather they become just accepting of, of this, this poor fate. Um, but as I said, I mean, that's, that's his reading of it. That's been very, very influential, but I think there are, there are many other ways you can, you can read this story. And Tsang Dunder himself, for what it's worth, is, is very skeptical, I think, of this, uh, this RQ connection and this, this reading of the story as, as national character. And I think especially in the second part of the much longer second part of the story, you see uh, sides of, of Rala, the character, that I think are very sympathetic. And I, things happen to him that are, are very tragic, but are, that are not necessarily driven by his own personality shortcomings, or they're not even driven by things that he necessarily does. So he spends most of the second part in prison, and it's for a crime that he doesn't, didn't commit. He's accused of, uh, of stealing Alak Drong, the, the recurring lama that I mentioned before. He's accused of stealing Alak Drong's horse, which he didn't do. He goes to prison. Um, where he's expected or required to, to speak Chinese to the prison guards. He doesn't speak Chinese because he's a, a Tibetan nomad who's barely finished secondary school, didn't even learn to write Tibetan, never mind Chinese. And he suffers a great deal in prison as a result of this. And obviously his lack of education is, is not really his fault, I would argue. So I think there, there are a lot more... Um, there are a lot more sides to this story. There are many other ways we can read it, many other aspects of social critique, perhaps, that I think don't relate to or don't support this reading of, of national character. Well, that's really interesting, fascinating stuff. And I think um, I can't wait to read more of your articles as, as you delve into this. Um, the next, um, the next uh, offering it's probably, in my opinion, almost equally interesting to Rado. It's called A Show to Delight the Masses. And you've already sort of mentioned it briefly. I just love this story. Um, and it's the sort of story that could only be written in Tibet, um, mm. where you have this official dying and trying to use the same sort of corrupt tactics of life in dealing with the Lord of the Dead. Um can you talk a little bit about this story and maybe how it fits into a Tibetan sort of a set of Tibetan sensibilities that sort of make this story make sense? This, so this story is um, the one in the collection that was not translated by me. It's translated by um, Lauren Hartley, uh, who is an absolutely fantastic translator and who I've learned a lot from in general. So I, I really wanted to include this in here because it's, it's just, it's such a great story and such a great translation. And one thing about this story that, I mean, will immediately stand out the second you look at it is that half, if not more of it is, is written in verse. And this is uh, arguably a very, very strong link to the, the traditions of, of, of Tibetan literature. I think in many ways, when you look at most of, of Turing Dundrup's 
fiction, it's it's all written uh, in terms of form as, as short stories or novels or novellas. They are these these modern forms that we have now in, in literature all over the world. But the short story, the the novel and novella, these things did not exist in Tibetan literature until extremely recently. But with this story, A Show to Delight the Masses, this is a really interesting way in which Tsering Dundrup tries to find a connection or some way to, to link the modern form that we have now of the short story with the actual kinds of literary writing that did exist, with the forms of writing that did exist uh, in, in pre-modern Tibetan tradition. And so one of these forms would be this, what is uh, called... Um, mixed prose and poetry or mixed prose and verse so you will have a short bit of prose that, that sets up a situation and then a character will will sing a, a long a long song you have this a lot in uh, in tibetan biographies for example um where you'll have a rough description of, of what is happening followed by the protagonist i suppose then giving you a, a long verse. And so that's what Tsering Dundrup does here. He mixes prose and verse. And in the, the Tibetan uh, original, it doesn't rhyme. I think Lauren added that, uh, that, added that for this, to create this sense of, of what, what the equivalent or what some kind of equivalent of this might be in English, to give it that sense of, of rhythm. And she did such a fantastic job of of finding these rhymes, finding these rhythms in English, uh, that it's, it's just incredibly admirable and it, it really, really adds to the humor in a lot of these lines. And in terms of the actual plot of this, of this story, it's, as you said, it's another really, really great example of this, this searing indictment of, of corruption. It's the corruption of Tibetan officials in the Chinese government bureaucracy. This man, Losan uh, Gyatso, who's trying just to get ahead in life by standing on everyone around him. At one point, he, the, the story is structured almost as a trial. I think that there are very similar, there are similar kinds of stories, I think, from the, the Ming, perhaps even earlier in Chinese, of, um, of people who go down to, to the, the hell realms of Buddhism and are put on trial before the Lord of Death. This is what happens here as well. Losan Gyatso is, dies, he is taken to, uh, to see the Lord of Death and put on trial, and so his whole life is, is described. And it ends up being something like a, almost like a courtroom drama where he has this, this one um, spirit arguing in his defense and uh, another prosecuting him. They go back and forth throughout his life, arguing about his relative merits and demerits. But his merits, of course, there aren't many. He spent most of his time doing everything he could to, to exploit people. It goes into what he did during the, the Cultural Revolution, what he did to Buddhist texts, what he did to lamas and so on. And now in, in this post-Cultural Revolution age in the 1980s, when a lot of these, these sort of early stories are set, uh, how in this new era of, of Deng Xiaoping, of 
capitalism of opportunity, economic, social opportunity. He's one of these people who has just jumped on it. He's trying to grab everything he can with no regard for, for what he does to others. And so it has that same strong sense of critique, uh, social critique that Sering Dunder always has. But this is definitely one of the most funny examples of it. And it's also quite unique, I think, in this, this formal stylistic way in which he, he tries to tell this, this very modern story of life, the life of Tibetans in modern China, but through these, these very traditional narrative means. It's really fascinating <clears throat> all the way through. I, I really enjoyed that one. Um, the next one also features the Lord of Death. Um, in, in, a, in a very different story, this, this offering one money um, in which the Lord of Death features and sort of is dealing with two people who happen to die, one who's told, what is it, 9,999 money? Um, I think it's a lot more than that, but I can't okay. remember the exact number. <laughs> um, he's sh one short of a target of this mantra uh, that he's supposed to chant. And the other one has done just one. Um, so what happens? What, uh, how, how does the plot develop and, and how does the Lord of death take, um, take both of their, uh, actions? So this is a, a very similar story, um, to show to light the masses. And I, I like the idea of, of putting it in here as, so the two are almost companion pieces in a way. And you have the same setup where these two brothers, uh, well, not actual brothers, but rather sworn brothers, friends who have um, sworn their friendship to one another. They both die. They both go before the Lord of Death. And the Lord of Death, as in Shoted Light the Masses, is this sort of state bureaucrat figure. He has, he has an office. He has a computer. And the people who work for him resemble rather than the mythical demons or mythical beings they resemble far more officials of, of chinese government bureaucracy and so these two figures who have died are taken before the lord of death and their, their lives are reviewed again like what happened with losan gyatso in the previous story and here we we see that not not everyone in Sir Endodrop's fiction is absolutely awful. One of the, the the brothers, the one who has just that one that one mani, that one mantra that he's recited, he offers to give it to his sworn brother so that he'll have this this number, this you know, ten hundred million, whatever it is, amount of mantras that he's recited in his life so that he can go to this sort of heavenly realm. And the Lord of Death is extremely impressed by just how selfless, just how, how kind, how nice uh, this man is. And on the contrary, extremely, extremely unimpressed by how selfish, how unfeeling the other man is that he's willing to take the one soul mantra from his friend. And in this story, it was also, he sometimes has these very funny, abrupt endings, uh, Sarin Dundrup, in that 
you assume that this story is is heading towards a bad conclusion uh, or a bad conclusion for the brother who is the, the selfish one. But it, but it ends in this, this sort of strangely light-hearted, just funny moment where the Lord of Death is just so amazed by the friendship of these two men and how devoted they are to each other that he decides to take them to dinner. That's, that's how it ends. Incredible. Um, the, the following one, sort of, all, all of these stories sort of bring us into this interesting sort of cosmology where you have sort of the Lord of the Dead and you have, um, you have monks and you have contemporary officials and nomads. And the next one sort of brings us into perhaps one of the bigger contemporary social ills that you see people talk about. Uh, it's about Majang, and that's actually the title of the sh- uh, of it. Um, I've noticed Majang in uh, in communities or around several communities in which I've traveled, and you hear stories about people losing their houses mm. over over Majang debts. Um, can you talk about this story and and maybe um, do do you have any sense about sort of where how Tenentendra feels about uh, the the encroachment, we might say, of Majang in Tibetan communities, the, or the popularity of Majang and gambling in Tibetan communities. This this story is another one of those very short, uh, sketchy ones, but I wanted to include it for this very reason that uh, Majang comes up over and over again in his stories, but this is this one very short sketch that just deals with it head on, and. It is such an important thing to him, this problem of gambling, these, these social ills that have, have come to blight Tibetan society. And I don't know, uh, know for sure, but I'm, my, my Zhang, I don't know how long it has been popular in Tibetan areas, but it's certainly something new. Um, maybe I could be corrected on this, but I am almost certain that it's, it's something that comes with Chinese influence or comes with uh, Tibetan society being um, forcibly included into the Chinese state. And so you have these things that are popular in Chinese society starting to be popular in in Tibetan society. And so this story deals with this in in that none of the nomads in this community have any idea what Mahjong is. And a cadre, a government official again, brings this this mahjong set teaches them how to play and then teaches them how to gamble relieves them all of, of all their money and, and flees and these nomads have have just given everything and they don't have a lot of cash money they have things like uh, rams or livestock and they they give their livestock they give what few possessions they have and he at one point, they go off to Alak Drong, the Lama, to ask for his forgiveness, and they find he's playing Mahjong. Everyone's playing Mahjong. And I think that the Tsarangdandrab is, he, he's very, very concerned with the ways in which, I think these are new ideas. I don't know if there are comparable games in, in Tibetan culture like Mahjong, games in which you, you gamble, you can lose money or at least to the people in, in Zhe we can say, 
the least of the nomads in his fictional world. This is something that they just didn't have in life before. They didn't know anything about it. And all of a sudden, they're introduced to this, this terrifying possibility of just giving away everything they own and it can't come back in any way. And Serendip is very, very critical, very concerned of the ways in which this is a situation that is just ripe for exploitation, ripe for tragedy. And there's no recourse once you've lost everything. Really interesting. Really sort of speaks to some of all of these stories together sort of speak to some of the really pressing issues of life on the contemporary uh, Tibetan plateau. Um, the next piece, though, seems almost post-apocalyptic. It's the story of the moon. Um, and, it, and, it, and it really stands out as quite different, at least as I understand it. Again, very short, but quite different from um, everything else in the, in, in the, in the collection. Um, what's going on in this piece? This one, you are right, is, uh, is very post-apocalyptic. It's almost a short science fiction story. And to any readers of science fiction in the West, there, there won't be anything in here that's particularly surprising. But uh, science fiction as a genre is taking off hugely in China now. But there are, at least to my knowledge, there is no such thing as, as a science fiction writer in Tibet or even a science fiction story that I can think of, particularly, to be honest. And Serengdunup certainly has no interest in writing science fiction. Um, but what makes this story interesting to me was, as you said, it's, it's very different. It stands out. But it, it comes back to an interest that, of his that, that's very closely held that I think is, you, you see coming through subtly in some of his earlier work. But in later work, it becomes much more obvious. He's, he's very concerned with them. Um, environmental issues and especially in in tibet which has this incredible uh, incredible ecosystem with the these rare examples of wildlife they think are only found on the tibetan plateau the problem of, of environmental protection is is very acute in tibet there has been rampant problems with coaching, uh, with mining, with uh, the issues that come with, with dam construction, especially on the many uh, rivers that all these the major Asian rivers that emanate from Tibet. So there are, there are huge environmental uh, issues at play. And this is something that I think he, over his career, he's become more and more interested in. I think this story is this early uh, indication, perhaps, of, of some of his uh, interest in that. And to actually go back to, to one of the things we were discussing earlier with this idea of Tibetan national character with uh, Galo, the writers who talk about that tend to argue that Tibetans um, need more science, they need more technology, they need more of a, a scientific, rational mindset and less cultural influence from Buddhism uh, and, and less interest in Tibetan cultural folkways, for example. And they see especially Ralo and, and Turnundra as being a writer who's sort of in support of that mission. But I think when you read uh, stories like this and some of his other work, he's very, very skeptical towards the, the benefits of 
science or scientism, faith in, in scientific ideology, uh, faith in industrial modernity. He actually believes that the, there's enormous potential for harm, uh, especially the Tibetan environment that can come with that kind of ideology. And I think this the story reflects uh, his, his growing interest in that problem. I think we're going to put a pin in that because I think we'll come back to it towards the end. Um, in the interest of time, I'm going to skip a couple of stories. Um, uh, they're in here and they're all fantastic. Um, but I'm going to, I'm going to ask you specifically about one or two that uh, stood out to me for what they tell us about contemporary Tibet and sort of how, how they, I mean, they certainly gave me things to think about. Um, the first is the title piece, the handsome monk. Um, this story, like all the others, it seems to have so much embedded cultural knowledge with feuds and reincarnation, recognition of, of lamas. Um, tell us about this story and what's, what's your take on it? I think that it's, there's, there are aspects to this story that almost would, would seem to be fantastical uh, to a lot of people. And, and not just the process of reincarnation, which the story describes, uh, the process whereby uh, one high-ranking lama uh, dies and uh, several years later is reincarnated in another body and is recognized, this, this person is recognized through a series of um, signs, through a series of rituals, perhaps prophecies that the previous incarnation has left behind. All of these things are taking place uh, in this story in, in a way that, uh, in a very Turing <laughs> Dundra kind of way, which I, I would get to in a second. But um, also the, the nomadic feud or the feud between clans that is also at the heart of this story and occurs a lot in Turing Donut's fiction as a whole, I think seems to some, might seem to some readers like something that how could this possibly be taking place uh, in the contemporary world or in, uh, especially in China, in the Chinese state where things are so heavily policed and that, that monopoly of authority or military police authority is, is so strong. But, uh, not that I'm saying that what is what is being described in this story is you know happening every day in Tibet or something, but a lot of the the kinds of places locations that that Serengeti is talking about are very um, isolated. I mean, it's I don't want to use that word really because it's you know, has all, all sorts of negative connotations. But let's just say very very far away from I suppose major political uh, or military centers. And so quite often you will find these, these feuds, these local feuds taking place between um, different peoples that it, it's very difficult to police in a way. And so that's what's happening as the background to this story. There are two clans involved in a very fierce war, essentially. And you have uh, a monk from a family from one of these clans who is exempt from, from taking part in the fighting by virtue of being a monk. And this is where this, this central conflict of the religious and the worldly comes from for him. Uh, the worldly actually is, is very much suffering and death 
and he is escaping from it by being a monk. But he has very little interest in actually in being a monk. He strikes up a relationship um, with a prostitute that he visits in this brothel, this bar that he goes to drink in. So he is definitely very far from a model, being a model religious figure. But at the same time, he, he's hypocritical, certainly. But I don't think he's the kind of character that you would just condemn outright by saying, well, monks are supposed to be like this, monks are supposed to be like that. We get given, as readers, a really, I think, delicate and intricate and sympathetic portrait of the, the kinds of problems that faces a man like this. And towards the end of the story, Ginnugetsu, uh, this, this monk, is, is recognized as the reincarnation of, uh, of a lama. But throughout the story, we've been picking up these little clues that all of the, the ways in which the monks who find him and identify him as this reincarnation, all the ways in which they identify him are essentially fraudulent or have these, these very different worldly explanations that Gendon Gatso keeps trying to tell them I am not the reincarnation of this lama. I only have this, this mark on my head because uh, someone hit me when I was drunk, for example. But they refuse to accept this. They, they insist that he is this reincarnation. And it's this really, uh, I think, very kind of poignant, poignant way of getting at these, these tensions that exist in, in modern Tibetan society between perhaps all these different competing social forces, cultural forces, religious beliefs, certainly. Exactly. I mean, it, it really is a brilliant story um, and, and does take on so many of these different issues, as you've just said. Um, skipping over the next couple, uh, Revenge has, I mean, very much what it sounds like. It's, uh, it continues this concern with feuding, um, this time with a boy who has to avenge his father's murder. Nose rings is another story in which gambling appears. Um, brothers again, sort of the feud is that the clan feud is taking its toll on a community. Um, and, and I, I want to actually take a little bit more time on this next one after that called the last man to care for his parents. Um, and it sort of depicts sort of a news frenzy, a media frenzy that surrounds a man who, as the title says, cares for his parents instead of chasing modern conveniences. Um, what makes it uh, what makes it a valuable addition to the story in your mind, or, or, or to this collection in your mind? Well, maybe this is one that we can uh, we can come to some kind of understanding of together, because I've always found this this story um, a little bit puzzling, I suppose, and. And one of the reasons, uh, the main reasons that I included it is actually just because I enjoyed the, the structure of it. I enjoyed the form of it. It's essentially given as a kind of interview. So it starts off with this, this photojournalist who takes uh, refuge from um, Storm, I think, in the house of, of this local nomad who he finds is spent his entire life just caring for his parents very, very selflessly. 
and he writes the story about it. And suddenly all these reporters flock to his house to interview him uh, about his life. And he seems like this saintly kind of man. They're amazed that such a man could exist in, in the modern world. Um, and then the story just proceeds as a series of questions from these reporters to this nomad. Uh, some of which, I mean, all of the questions are presumed to be uh, in Chinese and are being translated by, uh, again, a rather corrupt local government official who is trying to turn the, the niceness of this nomad to his own advantage so that it can show the country something great about his county and how, how nice the people in his county are. So he sometimes cheekily mistranslates uh, or translates for his own benefit certain aspects of what is being said back and forth here. So I also like that dynamic of, of translation, of mistranslation, um, which is something that, like uh, uh, the, the environmental questions I was talking about, becomes more and more and more of a concern in Sir Indonop's writing, right? especially now he's, he's writing about this problem of translation between Chinese and Tibetan, or conflicts between the two languages a lot. And I think this, this story sort of, again, stages the beginnings of that interest quite well. Um, and as for the actual uh, plot of it, it's, uh, it's, it's rather interesting, I suppose, because you, you'd associate this idea of, of filial piety um, perhaps more with, with Confucian culture um, than with Tibetan Buddhist culture being a particular virtue of, of Tibetan tradition. Uh, but uh, what, what happens is that uh, the nomad is, is shocked to find that the modern world, which has seemingly moved on uh, without him, is no longer a place where people have, have the time or the inclination for these, these kinds of traditional family values or basic selflessness of, of looking after your, your helpless and infirm elderly parents. He thinks that's just something that, of course, you should do that. He can't understand why people are so amazed by what he's doing. So there is certainly this, this um, conflict of a tradition and modernity taking place in the story. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's probably my favorite four-page story ever. Um, it's just there's so much going on, as you suggested, in this very, very compact little narrative. <clears throat> between sort of ideas about sort of the traditional ideas about taking care of one's parents and and these reporters who are sort of trying to trying to read this man's filial piety as you know something that might be involved with a political campaign a a local cadre who's trying to benefit, you know, trying to make his own benefit out of the experience. And this monk who, or, or this nomad who just has no idea what these questions are about. Um, it feels like a, an encounter I've seen before as well. Um, really, really a wonderful short story. Um, the final piece in the collection is the, is Black Fox Valley, which you've also set up a little bit, and it brings us back to the question of environment, um, and sort of set it, sort of different the way different policies have uh, 
moved Tibetan nomads away from grasslands uh, and the effects that that has had on families and on and on communities. Um, and I'm wondering uh, if you could sort of talk about this work and maybe how Tsenandundra links his work of this community to contemporaneous political uh, movements that we're seeing. Um, movements in... Or policies, I guess, is probably the better way to say mm. it. Oh, I see, I see, yeah. Um, yeah, and this is one of the... Uh, I'd say it's possibly the only issue with this story, is that it, the, the immediate context of it is this very specific uh, government policy. And so being familiar with this policy myself, I, I read this story and immediately saw what a, what a, a wonderful uh, demonstration of the deep flaws of what consequences this policy has. Uh, but to people who are not familiar with it, I'm, I'm not entirely sure how it can be read. But then by the time I got to the end of the story, I felt that it was such a human narrative. It's so well written. There's so much going on in the story that I think you can still get huge amounts out of it. And you can get everything you need or want to get out of it without being necessarily familiar with this policy. But uh, the policy I'm talking about is, um, uh, I don't know how long it's been going on now, but for several years at least, um, a policy of removing nomads from the grasslands and settling them in towns. And there are, as, al as always, it seems with, with Tibet, there are two very, very sharply divided sides on this with them. Uh, I suppose the, the view that, that the government sees the nomadic populations as very difficult to control, um, as I was talking about earlier, very difficult to police, certainly, and also not productive. They're not, they're not using these vast amounts of land for the kinds of uh, uh, agricultural or industrial profit that the, the government perhaps thinks can be gotten from these lands. Uh, and of course, the, the government has the very different uh, argument that they are providing health care, they are providing education, and so on to these, these people who otherwise might not be able to receive it because they're moving from place to place. Uh, so it's very difficult to provide these sorts of basic social services for them. Um, as, as always, you know, there, there are certainly um, elements of, of truth and falsehood to all of these things. Uh, but whether the policy uh, is magnanimous, however it's intentioned, um, I think what, what Serenyandrup does here is, is show us some of the very real tangible uh, effects that it has had. And to put it simply, there is the nomadic way of life is... It is a whole lifestyle that has, has evolved over hundreds and hundreds of years. And there are just aspects um, of the lives of these characters that he describes that are so bound up with that way of living that once they are, are forced to move into this a newly constructed town and suddenly lead an entirely different way of life, a settled way of life, they simply do not know how to cope. They don't know how to live. And there are aspects of this life that might 
seem nice, that might seem convenient, but there are so many other elements of it that that are impractical compared to what how how they used to live before, that are inferior. Um, this sort of mass-produced, industrialized uh, milk, meat, the, the sorts of things that they now have to buy that they used to be able to produce for themselves and they used to be able to sustain themselves with these sorts of products. And now they have to, to buy them in this, this uh, consumer economy. But everything they buy is, is horribly in, inferior to what they used to have. And moreover, a lot of the time, is is, uh, is fake, as they discover. and sort of they, they fall victim to many kinds of, of fake products you can find in China. So they, they end up buying fake milk, for example. Um, and so, so many aspects of their lives just take this, this hugely tragic turn as a result of this, this forced resettlement. Uh, really, really is, is a tragic story. You started the, you started the, uh, interview by saying that this was one that almost brought you to tears at the end, but that he wanted you, that Tenenthunder wanted you to find something to laugh at or, or to smile at. Do you, do you see that now? There are elements, as with all of his fiction, there are elements throughout the story, I think, that are very funny. Um, and as I said, I think it's a very, it's a very rich story. There's a lot going on. There's, there's aside from, um, concerns about corruption, religious corruption, which we've seen again and again. This story has a lot to say about environmental issues. Um, and as I alluded to before, I think one of the real reasons that the government might want to be moving nomads off, this, off their land is because they have more uh, large-scale productive uses that they want to put it to. And so in the case of this story, what that is, is coal mining. So they take the the nomads off their land and they turn that land into an enormous coal mine and just absolutely strip it bare. And I, I've been to, a, to parts of, of the Tibet Plateau where I, I've seen this sort of thing, um, temporary roads built, just endless streams of trucks filled with coal pouring down these roads. And then the roads themselves are not even meant to be permanent. They end up sinking into the dirt because they're only they're built for convenience to, to strip away as many resources as you can from the land as quickly as profitably as possible and that's what happens in this story and there is this huge contrast between the beginning which describes this this absolutely lush ideal uh, rich natural paradise that is the valley that at the end of the story is this nightmarish industrial hell and so that interest he has in uh, environmental questions is very strong in this story as is um i am getting back to the human as is the uh as is the question of, of language which i alluded to earlier and some of the really funny moments some really interesting moments in the story are when the family has to move to this town and so all of a sudden they are forced to deal with government officials with shopkeepers and so on who don't speak Tibetan or don't speak it very well or, or at the very least some degree of, of experience with bureaucracy means they have to deal with Chinese and the, the protagonist um, Sangye doesn't speak Chinese and so all of these 
these sort of lost in translation jokes or these hilarious miscommunications ensue. And those bits, I think, are, are wonderful. They're really funny. There's also toilet humor. There's more toilet humor in this story. He, he loves a good bit of toilet humor. And so there are, of course, moments throughout the story where you laugh. But the ending I found, it was the ending I found very, very horrible and tragic. But in, I think, as I said, he, he has a very different reading of his own work and the work of others, where to him, the structure, the structure of the story is almost a joke. Uh, and as I said, it starts with a description of the, the lovely natural valley, and it ends with what that valley has become. And that structure, the ending of the story, is almost a punchline. It's almost the punchline of a joke to him. Uh, it's just a joke that uh, I don't think many people will find very funny. I can see that. Um, so... There is actually one more piece um, of a, sort of the diary of a volunteer AIDS worker. Um, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I don't think we're going to get to it, even though I highly recommend anybody who gets this book to read it, because the question of AIDS does seem to be something that uh, appears increasingly often in various forms of cultural production in Tibet nowadays, sort of the, the question of AIDS awareness. Um, but Chris, we've taken up so much of your time. Uh, thank you very much for uh, sharing sharing your your thoughts and and your experience with this work uh, with us. Um, before I let you go, though, I was just wondering if you could tell us what you're working on now. Uh, right now, I have just uh, started working on a novel by a writer from Pasa, a contemporary writer. And she is, she is another writer who is perhaps a little later than Sering Dundrup, um, perhaps the mid-80s, I think. Um, she is, is really, really talented, really fascinating. And there is virtually no Tibetan women's writing available in English. Uh, she wrote a novel a few years ago called um, Flowers and Dreams, which is about uh, the migrant prostitution trade in if you like in, in class at the poor uh, women from from poorer families going to the the big city and trying to find their way trying to find uh, a means to survive in life and, and ending up in these horrible uh, exploitative situations but within which they find some sense of, of community and, and a means to try to survive against all these odds. It's a, it's a very, very harsh, uh, but very touching and I think very important uh, book. And so that is what I'm working on now. Sounds really great. Um, Christopher Peacock, thank you so much um, for stopping by and talking to us about your work. Thanks so much for having me. Have a good one. <laughs>